RTL Original Podcast. Today, the story of Luxembourg's wildest criminal gang, who robbed over 22 petrol stations, banks and jewellery stores across the Grand Duchy between January of 1983 and October of 1985. But they were more than just bank robbers, they were also cold-blooded murderers. Five accomplices of the gang were shot and burned by the four main members on a farm in the eastern village of Waldbillig. How did they go on about orchestrating their robberies, and what were some of the tricks they used to outsmart the police? And what was the final big heist where it all went wrong? This is DNA, and this is the story of the Waldbillager Band. If you're a follower of our DNA series and you've listened to our last episode on the Bommelayer affair, you may recall that the 80s were not exactly Luxembourg's best time in terms of policing and public security. The police force was underfunded and morale was very low. There were a lot of attacks that somehow left the police quite embarrassed because they always found themselves to be one step behind criminals rather than a step ahead. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I encourage you to do so, because it may just shed a little bit more light on the country's situation at the time. It was in this exact same period, between January 1983 and October of 1985, that Luxembourg witnessed the activities of arguably the most violent and criminal gang in the country's history. It's the story of the Waldbilliger Band, or the Waldbilliger Gang, who executed 22 violent robberies and stole a total of 47 million Luxembourgish francs, which today would be somewhere around 1 million euros, which was an even bigger sum of money back in the 80s. Now, the Waldbilliger gang was composed of four men. Jos Bernardi, who was born on the 24th of August 1954 in Differdange, Guy Hertert, born on the 2nd of July 1957 in Luxembourg City, Carlo Fett, born on the 22nd of December 1960 in the capital, and Nico Reisdorf, born on the 16th of October of 1958 in Luxembourg City. Now let's start off today's case by describing the men's early childhood years. I think it's fair to say that all four boys suffered from harassment, bullying, violence and a lack of care and love coming from their parents and the people around them. And this would have played a role in triggering their later behaviour in some form or another. Three of the boys, Joski and Carlo, met at a children's home in Limpertsberg called Kannerland, which in fact still exists today on Avenue Victor Hugo. And while the director at the time, Sister Marie Albert, said that she believed the children to have always been treated with respect and that it seemed to her that they felt comfortable at the home, the three men told RTL in an interview for the original DNA series that they had very negative memories of the place. There were stories of abuse. Children would be hit with a cane on their buttocks, legs or hands, and 
things didn't get much easier for the three when they moved on, because when they grew up, they transitioned from a children's home to a youth home. Now, Nico Reisdorf at the time was the only one not living in the children's home, but he sadly too grew up with violence around him. He was living with his parents, and he often fled his parents' house due to the fights at home, and he even voluntarily went to the children's home to ask if he could stay there and if they could offer him protection. Now, Nico's parents, of course, would notice that their son had fled the house at night and went to pick him up at the children's home several hours later. His parents fought a lot at home, but it was his father in particular who was the violent one in the family. Nico even recalls that at some point, his father told him, I'm going to kill you. But young Nico was a smart boy, and as soon as he had the opportunity, he escaped again and fled to the police. He was seven at the time when he knocked on the station door in the middle of the night. Officers asked him what he was doing out alone. Nico explained the situation that was going on at home to the officers, and police decided to drive him back to his parents. But at the door, police told Nico's father and mother to leave their child alone. And this was a big moment in Nico's life, because his parents seemed to respect the officers' demands and never really hurt him again. This had a big impact on Nico and actually made him decide that from that day onwards, one day he wanted to become a police officer. Meanwhile, Carlo Fett was the first child to be born into his family, and he grew up without a father. He had a lot of trouble at school, and thus his mother placed him at the children's home. That's where he got to know his friends. Carlo Fett could not be interviewed anymore as part of the DNA series, as he passed away nearly two decades ago. Joss Bernardi also grew up in a problematic household. His mother was married three times, and he was bullied frequently at school. He changed schools many times, and people would awkwardly avoid the family as well. They were excluded. When they came across them on the street, they would often switch pavement sides, and then back, Jos recalls. So, overall, things aren't going well for the boys, and to be fair, they're about to get a lot worse. In their teenage years, Joski and Nico are constantly in and out of prison. At the age of 16, Jos is the first to be arrested following a robbery of a weekend home in Hoscheid, where he stole some things that weren't of particular great value, but were toys that the kids knew they could never afford. For example, an air pistol. Nico and Guy are also imprisoned for other robberies. And it seems like they were robbing these little weekend homes in the north of the country, out of boredom really, because they felt like there was nothing else to do. They all land in the penitentiary of the Grund, and the guys recall the brutality and extreme environment of this prison. Now, this prison was established in 1867 in what is today the Nature Museum, but it was a very cramped, dark, overcrowded place that even saw imprisonment of political figures by Nazi Germany in the Second World War prior to them being moved to the concentration camps, and it was widely regarded as a place of despair. The prison was closed in 1986, but it was here that they found each other as a group, for the spirit of criminality took over the start of this gang. Gang rivalry was prominent in the facility, but the three boys shared a similar ideology, detesting the system and its government. Among the prisoners is also a man called Pierre Petit Frères. 
who turns out to become one of their idols. He is imprisoned for robbery, and the boys are in constant contact with him and other adult criminals, who end up teaching them what they know, and these men also share the same ideology. It was a bit of a schooling, learning how to be a criminal, learning how to become a criminal. There was a library at the prison with crime and police books, and the boys would end up spending a lot of time there reading and learning tips and tricks. Once the boys are released from prison, they're having a tough time getting their foot on the ground back in normal society. No work, no place to live. They blame everyone for their mistakes, and their families in turn blame them. And it is here where the string of robberies really kick off. First, petrol stations, then banks. In 1980, Nico Reisdorf and his accomplice rob their first bank at the age of 21. But it takes another three years for the gang to really officially form and begin working together actively. But they needed guns first. In prison, the group befriended the prison ward, who quite stupidly boasted about his private gun collection. Now, the guys are not dumb criminals. They paid a prison ward a visit at his private address, stole his guns along with 5,000 bullet rounds. They were clearly prepared to tackle the big guys. They had 50 to 60 banks in mind, a getaway plan in place for each individual one of them. But at the same time, they seemed pretty flexible, Yoss would later go on to say. If one bank happened to have construction works taking place outside their door on the day of the planned robbery, they'd just move on to the next one in the list. Jos Bernardi was in charge of the firearms and was also often the designated driver. The Waldbilliger gang was a professional team. They left no traces and had their guns hidden under the ground in the forest. They were also able to outsmart the police with little tricks. For example, during their heist they would be carrying two sets of clothes, leading investigators on the wrong tracks. They had shoes lying in their getaway car that were not actually their real shoe size. They favoured the German Opals for their operations, but once they realised that Opals were frequently stolen prior to operations, they moved on to other brands. They would steal personal items from people in cafes and leave them in the cars, always one step ahead of the police, sprinkling false information everywhere. In February of 1985, police are close to catching the gang for the first time. The group is robbing the BGL in Strassen. There are gunshots, for the first time at the bank itself. The robbery could have been a complete flop as things did not go according to plan. Nico fired a bullet into the ceiling as he thought the bank manager was not taking the gang seriously enough when they requested him to open up the safe. But only then did the gang realise that once a person closes the safe of that bank, which had been done shortly prior to the gang's entry, there's a time lock on the door, and you have to wait 30 minutes before it can be reopened. So they made a run for it. When they tried to escape and flee, they were met with gunfire outside. Turned out that a police officer had been living above the bank, who noticed what was happening. He waited for the gang to come out and open fire, but they managed to escape. Several years later, 
Nico met the bank manager who admitted that when they arrived, the safe was actually open. But when gunfire was heard, he slammed it shut. 30 million francs were in there. The gang begins taking greater risks. More explosives, more gunfire. But all this time there is no clear leader. And prior to Carlo Fett joining the operations in the summer of 1985, the gang functions pretty smoothly, things are going well. But when Fett asked the gang several times whether he could participate in the robberies, they did not feel comfortable enough to let him be a part of them. Paul Hahn, the chef of national security, would later explain that Carlo Fett was really a true psychopath. He recalls a story by Fett's mother, brother and wife that he would do crazy things at home, like when the family was watching a cowboy movie, he'd take out his revolver and participate in the gunfight he was seeing on TV, shooting into the walls and ceiling. This is the type of person the gang was dealing with. And so soon the first cracks begin to appear in the Waldbilliger band. At the gang's peak, 16 members are directly or indirectly involved in the gang's activities. The members think there is too much involvement and participation, too much chatter, and the gang is worried that the word spreads about who their main members are. The straw that broke the camel's back was when, one night, a bar owner called the police, saying that two men, who had been drinking way too much, were boasting about having robbed a bank. When the gang found out that the two accomplices, Elo Steiners, along with his girlfriend Patricia Fettis, two indirect members, also knew too much about the gang's activities, Nick, Guy and Jos decided to bring it to an end. They killed both Elo and Patricia in the name of protecting the gang. Furthermore, Jean Chabot, another participant, was killed in August of 1985 following a robbery at the Bill in Hesperage, which included a hostage-taking. The heist had been planned together with the gang, but Chabot took the initiative and did it solo, which ultimately cost him his life. Things were already looking bad, but everything truly went south for the gang during an attempted heist on the 30th of October 1985. The target was an ambitious one, the Central Bank of Luxembourg on Boulevard Royal in Luxembourg City. In fact, the target was so ambitious that nobody expected them to actually come to that bank. You can imagine the center of Luxembourg City, a big building, many customers and staff, most likely already back then traffic problems on the boulevard. No, it couldn't possibly happen. This would be Carlo Fett's first operation, but the gang was reluctant to include him. They always believed that the smaller the gang, the easier the operations would be. But after several months of consideration, they included him. A decision that would later turn out to be the worst one they ever made. One man was not part of the robbery that day, Nico Reisdorf, who was already behind bars in Givenish. The execution of the heist was a total fiasco. Shortly after 4pm on that fateful day, and remember this is a regular working day, the city is really busy, Fett, Hertert and Bernardi access the bank through the front doors and shatter the glass with a shotgun. Fett fires several shots into the ceiling and points his gun at customers. 
The gang had been informed that the big vault would be open around 4pm and there is little security inside the bank. But despite the dramatic situation, a staff member nevertheless manages to trigger an alarm. Overall, the gang is only inside the bank for under eight minutes, but these minutes would go on to change their lives forever. They grab hold of two hostages and flee the bank with all the money they can carry. Outside in the neighborhood, police officers Vic Leclerc and Patrice Conradi are making their usual patrol round around the capital, which includes driving past the bill. The call comes in that there is a robbery taking place, and the officers are one of the first to arrive at the scene, the moment the gang stumbles out the front door. There is an exchange of gunfire. 33 shots are fired from the gang, 22 alone from Carlo Fett's gun. Carlo Fett shoots Patrice Conradi in the head. He dies at the scene. Patrice Conradi is the first police officer in Luxembourg's history to die in service. A hot pursuit is underway, involving numerous police vehicles. The gang attempts to race through dense traffic in the city centre, takes a few turns down to Clausen, along the N1 to Neudorf in the direction of Sens. Near Findel Airport, they swerve through a half-open gate into an open country lane, but suddenly they hear a big bang. The front right tyre is burst, most likely shot by police. A surprised couple walking their dog in the forest unexpectedly find themselves in the middle of a gunfight, and both the couple and their dog are being shot at. In an odd sequence of events, after coming to a standstill, the gang managed to steal one of the police vehicles along with their hostages and then race off again. The pursuit continues. Both hostages are dropped out of the car between Conturn and Moufort. The chase continues into Moufort, but it comes to an abrupt end thanks to one individual. A farmer, later named as Norbert Denevald, was just finishing a day of work when he drives back home through the village on his tractor. He comes around the same bend that the gang is approaching at top speeds from the other side. They meet in the middle of the bend, and the gang's escapee vehicle crashes head-on into Norbert's tractor. Fett, Herter and Bernardi jump out of the car and shoot at Norbert and his dog. Norbert is hit with three bullets, a fourth skims his head, and his dog is shot at once. The three gangsters flee the scene and decide to continue on foot as their car is completely bashed up. Now they're in need of a new getaway car. Police are just seconds behind them. They storm to a nearby house and ring the front bell. It is the home of the 18-year-old Chantal Rippinger and her mother, Marie-José Steil, and their dog. Chantal opens up and one of the gang members pushes their gun under her chin, exclaiming, don't do anything stupid. They pull Chantal out the door, telling her to guide the gang to her car. Meanwhile, her mother, Marie-José, who is still in the house, rushes to the door and because she sees the gun and is aware that she cannot possibly physically wrestle her daughter free from these three large men, slams the door shut and locks it. The gang then fire a bullet through the door, skimming past Marie-José and blast down the door. Bernardi and Hertert storm back into the house and grab the keys, meaning Fett was probably the one holding the gun at the girl, but the dog comes rushing in and seems so aggressive that the two men decide to stay away. Bernardi, Hettert and Fett make a run for it and head towards a forest behind the house, left without an escape vehicle. Hettert and Bernardi are in decent shape and continue pressing ahead into the dark woods. 
But Fett is lagging behind. He's out of breath and forced to return to the house, where police await him and put him in handcuffs. Police quickly manage to set up a perimeter around the village and place units to guard the forest's border, but Bernardi and Herterd manage to sneak out of the woods, crawling past a street where the perimeter is set up. After crossing a stream, they jump on a train to Vecker, but they have no firearms to protect themselves and have lost their masks in their attempt to flee. Upon arrival at Vecker's station, they make a pretty stupid mistake. They spot a cafe and casually decide to go in for a quick coffee. They ask the barmaid if they can make a telephone call, but their appearance and behaviour is so suspicious that the owner informs police about the two dodgy men. Police forces arrive, and it marks the end of the Wald Belleger gang. By that evening, all three men are locked up in prison. It takes several days for the Luxembourg public to hear that the gang had been captured. Of course, there was no internet at the time. After two years of countless robberies and heists, the Wald Billiger band had been jailed. In prison, Bernardi, Hettert and Fett had no contact to one another, yet all said that they had three additional accomplices during the robbery. Their names were Steinus and Sabo, as well as Patricia Fettis, Steinus's girlfriend. But what police do not know yet at this point is that those three individuals had all been murdered. You may recall how the gang went through a period of instability with too many people involved, and they were extremely worried about the word getting out of who the core members of the gang were, so they murdered a few chatty accomplices. Police began searching for the three individuals. Investigators found Patricia Fetis's mother, and during a visit, police saw a little girl running around her house. It was Patricia's daughter, the woman said. For months, Patricia's mother had not heard from her, which she believed to be very strange because even though she was frequently away, she would always make sure to call and check up on her child. So to police, a plausible conclusion was that Patricia was dead. But a one-year search for the bodies was unsuccessful. But then Guy Hertert steps forward in prison and tells officers what exactly happened. He explains to investigators about how they went on about their plans and actions between 83 and 85. Hertert says he knew everything. Of course, to Bernardi and Fett, Hertert is the big snitch. But it is ultimately thanks to Hertert that police can finally put the puzzle pieces together. The key evidence for the missing bodies is an earring found on the farm in Waldbillisch, which belonged to Fett's family. Patricia's mother confirmed that it had belonged to her daughter. In March, the members, along with two other accomplices, were in court. But they didn't blame each other. They seemed to express a sense of pride in what they had accomplished. They felt like professionals, they said. In May of that year, all four were handed lifelong sentences with forced labour. There was no appeal. They had accepted their fate and seemed proud of it. Lifelong sentences. In prison, the men made some attempts to get back into society. Guy Hertert became a typographist and printer. 
Nico Reisdorf became a bookbinder and even published two books, one of which was Erziehung zum Wahnsinn, which sold thousands of copies in Luxembourg, a bestseller for the Grand Duchy's standards. Carlo Fett too followed an apprenticeship as a bookbinder. But several months after entering prison, Carlo Fett, along with another prison colleague, Raymond Corbin, forged a plan to break out of Trassic. Corbin was a known criminal who had already escaped numerous times. The two construct a tall ladder out of mops, the ones used to clean floors in the prison, and somehow get it outside to the wall and flee. Carlo Fett is on the loose for 10 days before police locate him at the parking lot on the A1 motorway just before the Belgian border. There was a report of a homeless person attempting to sneak into a lorry. Fett made a run for it when police arrived, and when an officer tackled him, he stabbed him in the stomach with a little knife that he had been carrying with him. The officer did not suffer life-threatening injuries, but was out of duty for three months. Fett was thrown back into prison. After 18 years in prison, Carlo Fett was found dead in his prison cell at the age of 42. He had committed suicide. This was the end of the Wald Billiger Band, and two rather successful years in robbing banks, jewellery stores and petrol stations before that last big heist where everything went south. Before we end this episode, however, I would like to announce a special guest in next week's podcast. It is Dan Virot, the investigative reporter here at RTL, that uncovered many new facts about the gang and who, for the original DNA series, even interviewed some of the gang's members. He sat down with them, spoke to them for numerous hours, and I spoke to Dan prior to recording this episode, and I'm very excited about sharing our conversation with you. Dan remembers the case like it was yesterday, and provides an incredible insight into the minds of the criminals like no one has ever done before. So tune in next week to hear my chat with Dan, to hear all these anecdotes and backstories. As always, thanks for listening for this week and see you soon.